1: Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life.
0: Hello again, James. Hey, Scott. How's it going?
1: It's good. Going well. Ready for round two of our excellent investment series. Yes, we get to geek out on asset allocation. What does asset allocation even mean?
0: Yeah, well, it sounds
1: like something that a financial advisor says and makes me never want to talk to them again.
0: Eyes glossing over immediately. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, it uh, it's actually pretty important stuff. Okay. So we're gonna geek out on it a little bit today. Um, it really it's a simple way of saying what's your plan for how are you gonna invest your money. Yeah. Right. Simple enough.
1: Assets being things you can invest in. Mm-hmm. Allocation, just what's the right mix. So how do you choose how to mix the investments that you're making? What are the yeah. types of things you should be investing in?
0: Exactly, and the framework we're going to use for the conversation, I actually just read a great book by um, Larry Swedro, who's kind of a thought leader in our space for us us financial geeks, Uh, and he just um, put out a new edition of his book called The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, How to Be a Successful Investor Without Picking Winners, Mm. and we are going to use kind of a framework from from chapter seven on asset allocation to walk through… Um, asset allocation for you all. Great, and and let's back up real quick
1: before we jump in. I, th- this episode is really important because if you look at really any study, the the number one driver of the return that you can expect to accomplish from your portfolio mm-hmm. is going to come down to what is your asset allocation. Mm-hmm. So not who was a specific fund manager did you use that investment company or that one. It's it's going to come down to what assets did you invest in, and so getting the asset allocation decision right is very important, and so. Absolutely. Stay tuned because this will be important. Yeah. On to
0: chapter seven. That's right. So, what we're going to start with is we're going to start with three tests on how you should think about framing, um, asset allocation. And the, and they they come down to risk. They're all about risk. Mm-hmm. And they're basically your ability to take risk. They're your willingness to take risk and they're your need to take risk. So, yes. you can think of it as three legs to a stool. Right? Yeah, Yeah. I like that framework. Okay, so why don't we think through your ability to take risk first? My
1: ability, does that come down to like physical
0: ability? What does does that mean? So when we think about ability to take risk, it really starts with, um, there's really four factors that you want to think about when it comes to your ability to take risk. And that's like, how long do you have to invest? The first thing that we call that time horizon, right? Then there's um, your stability of, of earned income so mm-hmm. how 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 reliant do you need to be on these funds perhaps while during while you're investing um do you have a need for liquidity or do you have a need for money out mm-hmm. of this the money at uh, this portfolio coming up and then the the fourth option would be well what's plan b gonna be mm-hmm. if this really doesn't work out well for you got it yeah
1: so how, essentially how does your investment portfolio fit within your what you need it for Yep. That's going to drive your ability to take risks. Okay. So
0: let's start from the top investment horizon. Yeah. So we've talked about this many times before on the podcast. People will ask questions like, Hey, I'm investing for, I'm saving money for a down payment on a home. What should I do? And what do we almost always say? It depends. Of course we do. But, (laughs) but if they say I'm going to buy a house in three years, (laughs) what do we typically say? Probably not. Yeah. Don't, don't invest the money. Right. Mm -hmm. It's typically where we stand. Um, and, and one of the, you know, it, it's in a, in a reference in, in the book, um, he Larry lays out a um, kind of a broad overview of percentages you might maximum allocation. Now, maximum could be dependent upon your own circumstance. But, you know, if you think of it as like if, if you need money in 10 years, you probably don't want to exceed 60% in the stock market. This can make a lot of sense when we look back on all the numbers that we've looked at over the years for Drawdowns and how long it takes markets to come back on average, and how often you end up being okay. You always have to make your own choice, but um, but you can start to look at it from a time horizon. That the, I think the big overarching idea here is: if you have a really long time, you can invest in the stock market almost fully. Mm-hmm. If you have virtually no time, um, investing in the stock market is not very smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's mm-hmm. everything in between. Right, right, exactly, and and that makes
1: sense. I, would th- me personally. I think these these time horizons or investment horizons are a little conservative. Not the numbers themselves, but just yeah. lining them up, um, which is totally fine. Everyone's going to have different preference. Some are yep. going to think this is too aggressive, this is too conservative. But the approach of if you only have a couple years until you need all your money, it's it's very much a gamble investing in the stock market. You just don't have time on your side to, you can never guarantee anything, but to expect with reasonable, reasonable certainty right. a positive outcome.
0: Exactly. If you
1: have 15 20 plus years on your side you can definitely have a, a good reasonable assumption that you're going to have a positive outcome mm-hmm. so that framework absolutely makes sense i just know that i personally i think it's maybe on the conservative side but i know larry's much smarter than i am he's so. also
0: going to be on the conservative side yeah exactly i mean what are your thoughts do you think this you know, lines up well or do I think you it, i think it's a decent starting point and then you yes. have to ask yourself well how much you know a, l- a lot of it comes back to regret analysis, right? Mm-hmm. When we think about it, when we go mo- invest money in the markets for less than a market cycle, you're opening yourself up to a lot of potential of being upset. Yes. And if you, if you are willing to place that bet, there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to know what you're doing ahead of time.
1: Exactly. And, I, and we're looking at a chart that listeners don't see. So let me just read yeah. through it real quick. If you have a, what, what this chart is saying is if you have a zero to three year time horizon before you need your money, you probably shouldn't have any money in stocks. If you have four years until you need it, you probably shouldn't have more than 10% in stocks. The other 90% being in cash or conservative bonds. Right. At five years, you shouldn't have more than 20% in stocks. Six years, 30%, 740. And then at eight to nine years, that's where you can have a 50-50 allocation, he says. 10 years, as Scott mentioned, have 60% in stocks, 40% conservative. Um. I won't read through the rest, but you know, at 12 to 15 years, 80% stocks, 20 years. 100% stocks would be the maximum allocation.
0: Yeah, and the, the, like to me, just like anything else, it's a frame of reference. Exactly. For you to dial up or dial down how you feel about this. 100%. I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything. It's a good starting point for a conversation is how I would view it. Uh, I don't think it's ironclad at all.
1: Mm-hmm. I just like throwing rocks at people that aren't here to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. So Okay. <laughs> take that, Larry! Larry,
0: just <laughs> sling him right back at you.
1: <laughs> totally kidding. Obviously, great, great work that, we're, that he's doing, and um, I just think, for me personally, I think it's a little conservative, but the the framework is what's most important.
0: I'm with you. Okay, so for the next thing for ability to take risk, the next thing you need to think about is how stable is your income outside yes. of these investments, mm-hmm. right? So, and it's something that a lot of, of, um, people don't think about. And so honestly, it's sometimes something that I'll find some advisors won't necessarily think about for people either. So it's really looking at like how stable is your income, right? So, so think of it as like, if you're a tenured professor at a major university, chances are your income is not going to go away. Right. Right. Um, or maybe you're a practicing doctor at a large medical practice or something like that. Like chances are you're you're going to have pretty stable income. If you are a, a small business owner and your your business is tied to the economic ups and downs, the swings of the market, well then you you know you may need to be a bit more conservative. Yeah, or thinking. at very least
1: have a, a very large emergency fund. But yeah, how do you tie in your portfolio needs to? If you potentially need to draw from that, if you're a small business owner and, and times get tough. Exactly. You don't want that to all be in stock and right. then right. pull from that at a loss.
0: Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because if you think about it, it's like the professor and the doctor, they're not necessarily, they bet on themselves to get that earned designation to get to that point. But at the end of the day, they're usually working for a large institution with a lot of stability and it's difficult to remove them from that position. Um, whereas the small business owner is betting on himself from go, right, and dealing with the economic woes already, so it's like he already is very equity-like. Yep. Right, and the the professor and the doctor in that instance are very bond-like. Exactly. Right. So just keep that in mind. Exactly. Um, what comes next? The need for liquidity. Yeah, this
1: somewhat ties into that. But if you have, if you know that you are are going to have a large need for cash. Well, you, you need to have a portion of your portfolio that's there to provide that. Or mm-hmm. you need to have a very large emergency fund outside of your portfolio. Yeah. So this, this, this again, is how does your portfolio tie into your life and the needs that you have from it? Well, if you have a huge need for liquidity, that's going to come from somewhere. Right. And in many cases, it's going to come from your portfolio. And if, it, if that's the case, you probably don't want to have as much in stock there because stocks are uncertain and go up and down. You may want that portion to be in something more conservative.
0: Mm-hmm. And then um, the fourth option that, that they think about is um, what option would you exercise if there's a need for plan B? So imagine that like, you know, uh, a bear market hits that we're not thinking can hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the question is, what do you do? So do you have levers that you can pull outside of this portfolio? Can you delay if this is for the purchase down purchase, of, you know, maybe a payment on a home? Can you delay purchasing the house? Or if this is for retirement, can you delay retirement? Or could you take a part-time job or could you downsize your home or sell a second home? Or, you know, what are the things that you're going to do outside of this that will make everything else work for you? What's the resiliency factor for your plan overall?
1: Yeah. If you have an option that you can change outside of your portfolio, like you said, downsizing the home, moving out of state, working a little bit longer. If you have a plan B option that could solve your need for income or, or mitigate your expenses, Great. If not, though, your portfolio needs to be prepared to, to handle that.
0: Mm-hmm. And those, I will say, those Plan B options have to be real. Mm-hmm. You can't say you'll do them, but then not actually follow, be able to follow through on them, right? Like, I'm not moving back to the Midwest. I loved where I grew up, but it's not going to happen. So I'm not going to build it into my plan that I'm going to move back to the Midwest yeah. if my, you know, investments don't work out.
1: Convince yourself that you got a strong Plan B that would never actually happen, and mm-hmm. force your hand if something if downturn does exactly
0: it's far better for me to just be a realist and go nope i'm not going to do that so what are my other levers right right awesome okay so that's one leg of the stool of risk right so we had ability to take risk let's talk about willingness to take risk Mm -hmm. that's where like um if you've ever been to a broker dealer or you've ever been to an advisor perhaps in the past or maybe like online you take a risk quiz to me that's what this is Mm -hmm. it's basically like the gut check of are you going to be able to sleep well being invested the way you're invested
1: Yeah. I like to say there's two, your portfolio allocation, there's kind of two sides to it. There's the financial side, which comes down to like, what do you need from it? How does it need to be constructed or engineered to meet your goals? And then there's the emotional side, which is just how much risk are you comfortable with? I mean, we've seen this past year has given us plenty of opportunity to see how comfortable we are with risk, with what's happened with the downturn from COVID and the ups Mm -hmm. and downs. If you're not comfortable with that, then don't try to force something that you might bail out of at the wrong time.
0: That's exactly
1: it. Yeah, and that's the emotional side. So that's where this your tolerance for this comes into play. And I think there's again a framework that we'll walk through that talks about based upon your maximum loss that you could tolerate. Here's the most amount that you should have in stocks.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, there are you can always take those risk tolerance yeah. quizzes to get a sense of like how much risk did you take, and that'll give you some guidance. Um, yeah. In the in the book, Larry points to maximum tolerable loss. And I'm just going to give one example. So if you, if, if, uh, James, if you and Ashlyn were sitting here and you had a million dollars invested and it's basically like, well, what's the dollar amount that's going to make you sick to your stomach? Mm. Like, what would that, what would that be like for you? How much do you have to lose to, to not want to get out of bed in the
1: morning? I don't want to lose more than 10%.
0: More than 10%. Yeah. Okay. So a hundred grand. Yeah. So, so you really shouldn't have an equity allocation above 10% then.
1: Okay. That's tough. Yeah. What if it's twenty? What if it's what if I can tolerate twenty
0: percent? Then you could go to thirty percent allocation. Okay. Yeah. So so it's it's a the point of this is it's a framework to have a conversation around how are you going to feel when markets go down? Yep. Because the worst thing that we can do when they go down is get to a point where you can't stomach staying invested. And you need to bail because mm-hmm. it's the absolute worst time to do it.
1: Yeah. And, and it's this is the neglected side of investing that people don't talk about because we look at returns and we see, oh, what's doing well? And this is so fun. If I can make money on this. Well, the opposite side of the coin is this, Yeah, is there's a reason you can do really well owning stocks is because the price you pay is potentially a really scary experience that you go on.
0: This literally is the price that you pay. Yes, Right. But no one talks about it. Mm-hmm. It's it's staying put when things go awry mm-hmm. and not losing your head. Mm-hmm. It's but one of Buffett's famous quotes is be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Yeah. Like if you're staying calm during this time, you're going to then we'll talk about it another time rebalancing. You're going to go buy stocks when they're cheap right? because you're willing to stomach it. Right. But You have to be able to stay in your seat.
1: You have to, and to go back to the chart here, if if you can to- if you want to be a hundred percent stocks based on Larry's uh, chart here, you need to be able to tolerate a loss of potentially sixty percent, right. potentially more. I mean, this is just kind of looking at past history. we we, we don't this doesn't mean that it couldn't be more in the future. Right. But if you can't stomach, if I'm sitting here with that million dollars, like Scott just said, if I can't stomach a six hundred thousand dollars loss potentially, I probably shouldn't be invested that way.
0: Not all in the stock market. Not all in the stock not
1: market. The stock market. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so that's part of that willingness to take risk, right? That other part of the stool. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the third leg. Let's talk about need to take risk. What does need to take risk mean? So
1: depending on how you look at risk, it's what are, are you on track for your goals? Like why are you investing in the first place? Yeah. Well, you're investing because you want to be able to accomplish the things that are most important to you. Financial freedom, sending kids or grandchildren to college, uh, legacy, buying a home. There's all these different things that are really important to you. And financial planning and investing is just a way to align your portfolio with those things. So let's say hypothetically, Scott, you're my client. And so obviously I did a great job and got you to accomplish all your goals. Awesome. (laughs) And you've got everything you need. Um, At what point do you have enough? Yeah. You know, At what point do you need to continue investing aggressively versus you simply protect what you have?
0: Absolutely. And I think that's where like, um, there's a couple of things that come to mind there. So when you're trying to build wealth, um, especially when you're younger, you're probably going to be a bit more, you could, it, it makes sense to be a bit more aggressive with investing in stocks over bonds and things like that. Uh, and then once you get to the point where you have enough, you clearly need to maintain some growth to let things continue because you have to beat inflation and all that stuff in the future. Right. But the question is like, is it worth... Is that what's what's it worth for me to earn that extra dollar versus protecting the dollar I already have? Right. Right. And if you don't ever know what your enough is, one, you can't ever reach enough then. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. so it's important to know what's essential to you so you can figure out what you need. Um, But at the same time, like your need for risk. Like if I, uh, I think an example, I would go back to like thinking, uh, sending Lucas to school in college, right? He just turned, he's eight, he's going to be nine. So we have nine more years to build up enough savings to help make sure that we fund the amount of college that we want to fund for Lucas, right. right? So we can look at, well, what's the what's the dollar amount we think we're going to need in the future? How close are we to that goal? And how do we change that? And the ways we can change that are we can save more. We can perhaps increase expected return if we want to, Yep. right? There's all those things we can control and that's where need for risk is going to come in.
1: Yeah. Now, one thing I'll add to this is this somewhat, this not somewhat, this does depend on how you define risk. Mm-hmm. Like if risk is standard deviation, so the uncertainty or volatility, then this framework is exactly right. This is how do you minimize the uncertainty as characterized by standard deviation of your investment portfolio. But that's not the only definition of risk. Other, you might define risk as purchasing power or loss of purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Well, if I want to maintain my purchasing power, then then it's actually more risky to be all in cash or too conservative because oh, as yeah. inflation increases. No, no doubt about that. that.
0: I I hope no one no one thinks we're talking about like all on all off. Right. There's always a balanced blend. It's truly just looking at how how dialed up do you go on equities versus how dialed back do you go on equities. Exactly.
1: And then the last thing is also risk in terms of the opportunity cost. Like say say I When the lottery and I have $100 million today. Mm -hmm. Like me personally, and this definitely isn't the case for everyone, I would probably still invest that in a quote-unquote aggressive portfolio. Mm -hmm. Just because think of all the great things that could do for family, future generations, charities, whatever. um, And what's the opportunity cost of being more conservative with that? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have enough. And do I preserve that? So I'm just kind of, I'm just talking through different ways of looking at risk is there's always a trade off for something
0: you are, which is actually where it falls to is what do you do when conflicts arise between the three legs to the stool? Right. Right. Cause if your need to take risk, your ability to take risk and your willingness to take risk are the same. It's quite easy. You mm-hmm. just do what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. The issues arise when maybe you didn't save enough when you were younger and now you're coming in and wanting to build assets quickly so you can retire um at some reasonable right. amount of time. Well, now to do that, you're probably going to have to invest more in the stock market than maybe your friend down the street would at mm-hmm. the same at the same time in life. Right. Right? Because but you may not be willing to do that. Right. So then you have to look at are you going to change what you're going to spend in the future? Are you going to work longer? Like what else are you going to do to get you where you want to go? Yes. Because there's always trade-offs.
1: Yeah, when when your need When your needs for your portfolio don't align with your risk tolerance for your portfolio, there's a conflict there. And so what are those trade-offs? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And the same thing could be said for ability, right? Like maybe you don't have the ability to take a lot of risk right now. Yeah, totally. But you need to take risk. Well, Mm -hmm. then that's an issue too that has to be dealt with. Yeah. So there's, there's there's issues to work through.
1: Absolutely. And so what all of these come down to, this three-legged stool that we're talking about, this is just high level talking about what should be the mix of stocks to bonds. And that's yeah. going to be the number one driver of your returns. Mm-hmm. Now, the secondary layer there is, okay, within your stocks, for example, how much do you have to US stocks versus how much should you have to international stocks? Right. And that's the second layer of what we'll call asset allocation here. And a good starting point, there, there's a lot of different schools of thought on this, but a good starting point is just look at, okay, well, look at all the publicly traded companies in the world that you could invest in Mm -hmm. and what percentage of those are in the US and what percentage of those are international, both developed and emerging markets. Mm -hmm. What's that breakdown?
0: Yeah. So as of the end of last year, about 55% of the world stock market was in the United States. Mm. And then from there, about 32%, we'll call it, Um, was basically in um, developed markets. So, think like the United Kingdom, Japan, um, Western Europe, those areas. Mm -hmm. And then in the emerging markets, you had about 14% Mm -hmm. of the world.
1: Yeah. So, not saying that needs to be your exact allocation. That's a good place to start. If you're just saying, how do I spread out my money? Well, you probably don't want to have too much in the US or too much in international or too much in emerging markets because they all make up a part of the whole but starting from there, and then de- determine how much do you want to skew that a little bit more towards U.S. or skew that a little bit more towards international, but somewhat along that breakdown, I think is a good starting point.
0: Yep. Yep. Agreed. Um, yep. So that's U.S.
1: and international. That's a good place to start. The, the second is just big companies versus small companies. Mm-hmm. You know, you when you're investing, we often look at the Dow Jones or the S and P 500. Those are good index. There are indices to track just to give us a gauge on how's the, the stock market performing. But those are all large companies. They're tracking large companies. Right. There's also small companies that you could invest in. So looking at your the stock portion of your allocation and understanding how much should I have in big companies and how much should I have in small companies. Mm-hmm. Now, just by definition, big companies are going to make up a much greater part of the total stock market than small companies.
0: Yep, and the reason why is because stock market Stark market indices are what we call market capitalization weighted, Mm -hmm. which basically means we take the share price of Apple times the number of shares of Apple, and that tells us the value of Apple. Right. And then I go down to the smallest, smallest small cap stock there is, and I take their number of shares times their number, their price, and I get their, their value, Mm -hmm. right? And they're a really small company. Well, clearly Apple's going to take up a bigger slice of the US stock market Mm -hmm. than that tiny little company. And yeah. everything in between. I- exactly. And Apple is a
1: $2 trillion company, as this recording. Right. Small companies, they are, by definition, $2 billion in size or less. So that means it takes at least 1,000 small companies to make up the value of one Apple. So large companies are just going to make up a much greater portion of the stock market. Mm -hmm. And so you could, again, as a starting point, understand what portion of the stock market do large companies Mm -hmm. make up and what portion do small companies make up and take that market cap weighted approach of of allocating your money according to those percentages.
0: Right. So like a, a simple version of that would be like if you bought a total market index for the United States. You would be buying all of those companies from Apple to the smallest, and they would just be ranking them by size. Right. Right. You're all done. Yep, Yeah. <laughs> for the US component. And you go look at what do I want for an international component or an emerging market component. Yep. And you're all set.
1: And in our next episode, we'll talk about something called tilts. Of Do you adjust that based on certain factors, um, which gets a little bit more... Geeky. A little bit more geeky, mm-hmm. but just as a starting point, as you're saying, okay, how do I allocate a great place to start is, okay, well, what percentage of the total stock market does this type of investment make up and start with that in your portfolio and then adjust as needed.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And then same with bonds and we won't talk as much or do you, anything else on stocks you want to talk about or does no, that cover the
0: it? The big thing is, you know, you look at where you're going to, you know, US versus de- developed markets versus international, and then there's large and small. There could be other factors we'll talk about next time when we get a little geekier. Um, I think that's it. I, I, one thing I would add is some people will look at, um, uh, real estate investment trusts. Those yep. actually are included in those big indices, those big, yes. if you buy that total market. So some people talk about real estate investment trusts, which is basically where corporations own real estate and they pay us back through a divi- essentially a dividend, um, kind of a different, a little geeky, but just know those are built into the big ones and you might, you could think of it as a separate class yeah. in and of itself. Um, from there, if we go flip, flip over, so to the bond side of things, um, I think the big things for us to talk about are a few things. And that's, um, the number one thing I would say is like, don't chase yield. And what I mean by that is like right now people were, we're watching, we actually did an episode recently on where someone asked, Hey, what should I do with my my, my savings, online savings account? It doesn't give me anything anymore. And the answer was, it depends. Yep. It depends on what they need it for. Right. But the, the number one reason why we own bonds for people in portfolios is to act as a ballast against the stock market, mm-hmm. meaning reduced volatility of the portfolio so you can stomach that ride mm-hmm. and stay invested, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's that's its primary goal. And so if that's its primary goal, we want to own really high quality things like treasuries or inflation protected securities or maybe municipal bonds, which basically just means that you're local government or your state is going to issue some bonds or we own corporate bonds. That's really high level, high credit quality, meaning we only want the really, really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Anytime we start to go dip down below double A, we start to enter into areas where they start to take on equity like characteristics. And the whole purpose of bonds is to stay, is to be kind of very different than the stock market Mm -hmm. so that it acts as a ballast.
1: Absolutely. Um, I don't think I have much to add on that except just to reinforce what you're saying of not chasing yield on the bond portion. Yeah, we, There's two sides of your portfolio for a reason. There's the stock side and the bond side, just very mm-hmm. high level. The stock side is where you can expect the growth to happen. That yeah. should be the engine of growth for your portfolio. The bond side, if all of a sudden you start chasing yield, what that means is you're starting to lend your money, which is what a bond is, to companies with poor credit ratings or you're starting to lend your money with terms of 20 25 30 years yeah well that subjects you to a whole bunch of risks including interest rate risks including credit quality risks of what those companies go under um, all sorts of different things and all of a sudden the portion of your portfolio that's supposed to be stable it could it it could lose that aspect to it so
0: The key is the key is to understand what the bonds are there for, and mm-hmm. it, the thing is that the, the the thing that happened was from the 1980s until today, bonds not only provided a ballast like state for people, but they also gave us rate of return and interest rates. Right, right. So they kind of did three things for us that were lovely, and now moving forward, it less likely to to, to happen just yep. because of the state of where we're at. You
1: interest rates just would be hard to go much lower.
0: Right. Awesome. So I think that the goal of
1: this episode is to say, last time we talked about the 10 principles of investment success, just what do you need to know to have success? Today is all about what's the high level breakdown between how much in stocks and how much in bonds. Again, this is going to be different, but it's important to know this because if you're investing for retirement, you might have one allocation of stocks to bonds based on the time horizon versus if you're investing for your son's college scott Mm -hmm. it's gonna be totally different allocation because the time horizon is different versus investing for a home versus investing for legacy versus investing for whatever it is knowing what that is is important because that helps you determine what should the right allocation be and then we dove into u.s versus international small versus large different types of bonds and on the next episode we'll dive into that a little bit more so you can really get the finishing touches on how do you think about tweaking your portfolio to get the best results out of it
0: Absolutely. See you next time.
1: See you then. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This
0: podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.